I came across a very interesting story this week. How many of you ever heard of a man named Ignaz Samuelweiss? The professor. Well, don't tell anybody what I'm about to say, all right? I, wouldn't, I was counting on nobody knowing, but of course, the professor, leader in a department, knows where, where I'm going here. Ignaz Samuelweiss, he was a doctor, all right? He was a doctor, and what bothered him to no end is that up to about a third of his patients died, and he couldn't figure out why. It drove him nuts, and he, he, would, he did all kinds of research trying to figure out why so many of his patients were dying, and uh, he, he had a theory about it, and he put his theory into practice and had all the doctors and nurses that were under him begin to do a, a, a specific practice um, and his theory was confirmed because at that point, almost none of his patients died. And so he wrote up a paper about his idea. And he went to this conference, and it was a, a world-famous conference, that any massive scientific or medical concept was presented at this conference with all the bigwigs in their uh, areas of study were there at this conference. And Ign at this point, Ignaz is like, he's 32 years old, about and he gets up and he presents his, his idea, his paper, to this conference. And he says, there's three words that he says in his presentation, that when he says those three words, everybody in the room loses their mind. Not excited, angry at Ignaz that he would suggest what he suggests in his paper. He, he, he presents his idea, the problem he had, and, and his solution to the problem. And he says to the room of doctors, he says, all right, wash your hands. The year's 1850. And everybody in the room, their mouths drop open, and they begin to boo and hiss and get angry at Ignaz that he would suggest that the fact they didn't wash their hands was killing their patients. You see, what he discovered in his own hospital was that doctors in the morning would go down to the morgue and figure out, try to work on the bodies of the people who died the day before. And then they would go up to see the patients, having just worked on the dead bodies, taking with them the diseases of the people who died yesterday, killing a bunch more people that day. And so he started making all of his doctors and nurses that worked under him wash their hands in chlorine and lye. He's, the way he phrased it was, until the smell of those putrid bodies gets off of you. And they would go in, and then none of his patients died anymore. Well, he was met with such animosity, not just at that conference, but when he went back to the hospital from his own friends. He was met with such animosity that he did not publish his paper. He just kept it under wraps. He still, he still practiced what he was preaching, but he just did not publish his paper for wide distribution. And the year was 1850. About 15 years later, he finally published his paper. And he was still ostracized at that point. Well, he ended up dying not very long after that. And uh, decades passed. And people still did not adopt his ideas. But it began to be, once he published his paper, his idea began to permeate the thinking of some fringe doctors. That by the time the year 1900 came about... 50 years after he presented his idea, the doctor started saying, maybe we should be washing our hands. And it became, at that point, widely accepted among the medical profession to wash your hands before dealing with patients, after dealing with patients as well. 
So much so that it's now in the cultural mindset of all of us, and we're not doctors. But how many of us were raised saying, before you eat, you wash your hands? You didn't wash your hands? Good enough. Go back and wash. I can still see the dirt on your, I can see the dirt. Go wash your hands. It, it, it is now this, this common concept that we wash our hands because we know germs exist, right? And you've got to wash your hands. And it was all because of this one man's idea. Wash your hands so people stop dying. Wash your hands. And what he didn't know is with those three words, wash your hands, he changed the world. He changed the world. But he died before he saw the world changed. He changed the world with just those three words. And today we're going to talk about three steps to changing the world. Three steps towards changing the world. Now, doing these three things isn't going to guarantee change. But what it does is it sets us up for the opportunity, not just for change within us and change within those around us, but for world change. And it sets us up for that opportunity. And we're going to look today at one of, I know you're not supposed to have favorites, but this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Acts chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 29. It's on page 912 if you're using a Bible on the rack there. Uh, it's also going to be on the screens. Uh, and uh, if you're watching online, it'll be on the screen right below me. You can get it there. Uh, but pull out a Bible if you brought one, one on the rack, on your phone, wherever. If you don't have a Bible, take one out of the rack, the pew rack. That's yours. That's our gift. Take it home. That's your Bible. Now, you can write your name in the front. Acts chapter 4. You see, what's happening here in Acts chapter 4 is, you know, Jesus came and he lived a few years. He poured into several guys, um, and then more started following up to about 120. Uh, and he, he pointed them towards... Uh, the gospel, and, and then he died, and he rose from the dead, and he met with them for about 50 days after he rose from the dead, uh, or about 40 days after he rose from the dead, and then Jesus left, and he told the disciples, those who were with him, those 120, at the end of those 40 days, hey guys, I'm going to leave, but go back to Jerusalem and hang out until a helper comes. They didn't know what this helper was going to look like, they had no idea what it was gonna, the experience was going to be, they didn't know how long they were going to have to wait. I mean, we know now, some almost 2,000 years later, that they waited 10 days, but they didn't know on the front end how long they were going to have to wait. And so they went back, and they just started waiting and praying. And this went on for 10 days, and then the Holy Spirit came, God, Jesus, helper, his, you know, the, another person of the Trinity came and settled on them and filled them. And then experiencing the Holy Spirit, their first reaction was, okay, we need to go out and tell people about Jesus. So they ran out into the street and started telling everybody they could find about Jesus. And thousands of people got saved that day and came to know Jesus. And so having done this then, and instantly they had a mega church, they had to figure out how that operated. And so all these thousands of people started operating under the assumption that they needed to tell, just like the, the apostles were telling, everybody they possibly could about Jesus. And what the end of Acts chapter 2 tells us is people started getting saved left and right. I mean, all over the place people were getting saved. To the point that now, you know, the very Pharisees, and now remember, this is just like a month and a half, two months after Jesus was crucified. There was a riot, they voted to kill Jesus, and he was crucified. And so this was going on in Jerusalem. And so people are getting saved, but the Christians would go right back to the temple, and that's where they had their church services, in the Jewish temple, in earshot of the very guys who voted to kill Jesus. And so Peter and John are there in the temple one day, and they're telling more people about Jesus. 
Well, before they get to the end of their message telling people about Jesus, the uh, priests who were in charge of the temple had them arrested. They're in the middle of the sermon. Don't even get to the invitation. In the middle of the sermon, they get arrested and taken to jail. Well, there's enough other believers there that they start spreading out among all the people who were listening to Peter and John, and 5,000 people got saved. Not because Peter and John were great speakers. They didn't even get to finish. It's like they got to point one and got arrested. Because of all the Christians, like you guys, spread out among the crowd and started leading everyone to Jesus, and 5,000 got saved. And Peter and John are sitting in jail. And they bring Peter and John out the next day and bring them before the court. Remember, very court that voted to kill Jesus. They bring Peter and John before the court, and they basically threaten them to death and say, you need to stop telling people about Jesus or we will kill you is kind of the threat they give them. And Peter and John leave, and they go to their small group. They go to their house, and they tell everybody there what happened. And everybody there in the room praises God, and they start praying. Now, I don't know how you operate, but if it's me, and I've just gotten arrested for telling people about Jesus, and the judge threatens my life that if I do it again, they're going to arrest me and beat me and kill me, and probably my family, I'm going to go home, we're going to pack, <laughs> and then we're going to leave. And as we leave, I'm praying, please be safe, please be safe, don't let them see me, don't let them see me, don't, let there be no cops on the way out of town, and I can get out of town, and nobody can know that I left. But that's not what they pray. They praise God, and they make two requests of God. Look at verse 29. This is where we are, okay? So they pray this, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So there's the two requests. That they would have more boldness to tell more people about the gospel, and that God would do signs and wonders. That they would have more boldness, and God would do signs and wonders. Now the signs and wonders, the, the, the works of the Spirit, is very interesting. Because back in John chapter 14, Jesus had told the disciples... You see all this stuff that I've done, all these signs and wonders, all these works you've seen me do? You will do these and more than this. And so they're basically praying that Jesus' prophecy would come true in their you know, eyesight, within their experience. They would, that they would be able to speak more about the gospel and that God would miraculously come down and, and do more signs and wonders among all the people. And so that's what their prayer is. That God would do all of this. Now look at verse 31. When they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So immediate answer to prayer. Remember, they prayed for boldness, so they go out and they start speaking with boldness. Immediate answer to prayer. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were unified. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. And they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. So the disciples, the apostles, went out and told people about their own experience with Jesus. Verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them 
and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And so they prayed, the Holy Spirit came, and some incredible things happened in response to them being filled with the Spirit. And we saw there in verse 31, they were filled with the Spirit. And then several things happened there in those following verses. First, I mean, they were bold. I mean, boldness proves the Spirit's filling. I mean, someone who isn't bold, is, I mean, it's going to be obvious they don't, they're not filled with the Spirit. The Spirit comes, and, and He comes, and He brings boldness. It's just a part of who He is. I mean, read you know, the book of John. Read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The man John doesn't say a whole lot. He says a few things here and there. Sometimes it's not so great. We were studying it in our, in our family devotional a few nights ago. You know, John <laughs> spoke up once, and he asked Jesus if he could call fire down from heaven and kill a bunch of people. And it's not a great example, but uh, not saying a whole lot just some things like killing a bunch of people. And then here in the book of Acts, he becomes this guy who's out there preaching and seeing a lot of people saved. Or Peter, who spoke too much. And it was often the wrong thing, putting his foot in his mouth consistently. He becomes the leader of the movement, preaching and telling a lot of people about Jesus. He would not be pick number one of the Christian draft, but he's the one that God had to go out and do this thing. Because they were filled with the Spirit, and the filling of the Spirit brought boldness. Boldness proves the Spirit's filling. But not only that, you see uh, there in verse 32, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That means they were unified. They were filled with the Spirit, and that brought unity. A filling of the Spirit brings unity. So if there's not unity, there's not a filling of the Spirit. If there's a, a disunified Spirit within an individual, they are not filled with the Spirit. Because a person who's filled with the Spirit values the kingdom of God over and above everything else. Over and above everything else. I mean, they were of one, of one heart and soul. And you think our nation is politically divided. They were massively politically divided. In a huge, even among Jesus' own disciples, they were massively politically divided. And yet, it's written they were of one heart and soul because to them, being filled with the Spirit, the kingdom was more important than their political opinions. The kingdom was more important than their personal preferences. The kingdom, the gospel, was more important than any of that other stuff. And so they set all that aside for the sake of the gospel. So boldness proves the Spirit's filling. Unity uh, uh, is a sign of the Spirit, and the world was changed. Well, what are some things that they did to bring about that change? Well, the first thing that we see, not only in what Peter and John did in coming back to their small group, but it says it there in the text, verse 31, they were gathered together. They were gathered. So three steps to change the world. Step one, you gather. You gather. You value the gathering together. We weren't created to be in isolation you know, when God created the world, and every day he said, it is good, it is good, it is good, until he made man. And then he said, it's not good. Some of you say, amen, man is not good. It's not until he created woman that he said it is good. He said, it is good at the end of every day, then he created man, and he said, it is not good that man should be alone. It is not good. We were not designed to be alone. 
in this world. We were not designed to operate alone in this world. We're designed to be together because we're better together. We're designed to, to function together, to be together. That's why, you know, I mean, in waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, those disciples, 120 of them, gathered and they prayed for 10 days before the Spirit came. We're designed to be together. That's why we as a church, we have large group gatherings. We have small group gatherings because that's what we see in Scripture. They had small group and they had large group. Here in Acts chapter 4, uh, Peter and John went to their small group and they prayed and the Spirit came and they had great boldness. Here in a second, we're going to see they had a large group as well. And the Spirit moved in a powerful, powerful way. So the first thing they did is they gathered. Uh, you want to be spiritually developed, spiritually changed, you've got to gather. You see, when, when you're moved by the power of the Spirit in your life, you can't help but gather together. You want to gather together. You want to be a part with other people. You want to point them to Jesus. You want them to pour into your life and, and have them point you to Jesus. You want to be among others so y'all can operate in this world together. You can't help it when you're filled with the Spirit. You, it, it becomes a part of who you are. And when it comes, you know, in, in our church setting, the idea is, you know, when you're filled with the Spirit, you want to come early. You want to come excited. You want to come expectant to, to meet with the Lord and see what He is going to do and what He is going to say. I mean, if you look back on all the revivals throughout American history, the first Great Awakening, the second Great Awakening, the Azusa Street Revival at the beginning of the 1900s, the Jesus Movement in the 1960s, all of it was a part, or the Holy Spirit's filling was instrumental in the midst of it but an outflow of the Spirit's filling was a gathering every single time. Prayer preceded it. The filling of the Holy Spirit was in the midst of it. And, and, and gathering was on the back end. Gathering. It's fundamental. It's foundational. Gathering is there in, in, in a part of what God has designed for his people. Gathering. I heard a preacher uh, this past week say it this way. His name is Kerry Newhoff. Good luck spelling it. Kerry Newhoff. I think I've got the quote, don't I? Yeah, there it is. There, it's for you. You can spell it there on the screen because it's crazy how to spell his name. He said this, decreased church attendance rarely produces increased devotion. I think he's dead on. I heard that and had to rewind the podcast. And I got to hear that again. Decreased church attendance rarely produces increased devotion. If somebody is fully devoted to Jesus and somebody is filled with the Spirit, being a part of the local church is going to be a part of who they are. I mean, you can't get away from it. I mean, I've had many conversations with people over the years who say, well, you know, church is great, but, you know, it's got a bunch of hypocrites. And I say, yes, it does. I'm one of them. Church is great, but it's got a bunch of problems. Yes, it does, because we're human and we sin and everything's got problems until we get to heaven. But, I, you know, I can, I can just do church at home, man. I mean, I can just meet with God and my Bible and I'm good. Yeah, you can do that but that's not what God wanted for you. That's not the way God designed it. Jesus himself, son of God, <laughs> gathered with people. He gathered with his disciples. And he did it every single day for several years. And some of them were just not nice people. They weren't. I mean, Judas was in the mix. Peter was in the mix. We just talked about John and his constant thing was wanting to call fire down from heaven and kill people. And Jesus had this, why? And then he had Simon the Zealot, wants to overthrow the government. I mean, he had all these people in his own personal small group. And that's Jesus. If there's anybody who ever existed from the creation of the world who didn't need a small group, it's Jesus. But he got one. 
He started one himself because he was filled with the Spirit. A filling of the Spirit is a recognition that we can't do this on our own. It's a wanting to be a part of what God has designed for his church, big C, capital C, church for the world. So you gather. Next thing you do, look at what they did there in verse 34 and 35. You want to change the world, you've got to give. They gave. They sold their stuff and they brought it. They laid it at the apostles' feet and the apostles distributed. They gave. They gave abundantly. They gave, you know, far and above what many of us are comfortable with. Give far and above what I'm comfortable. I mean, they sold everything, some of them, and gave it, trusting that God would provide whatever needs they had. They sold it all and gave it. You want to change the world? We have, first, we have to change us. And a lot of times, what that means is we've got to give some stuff that, honestly, if we were, let's just be transparent, stuff that's maybe become an idol. That we've puffed it up and we've made it into an idol. And we spend more time thinking about and devoted to that thing or to that money or to that number in our bank account or to whether the stocks were up on Friday. Or, or we, we spend so much time thinking about what the number in the bank says that we're missing what Jesus has in our life now. It's like when Jesus said to the rich young ruler, and the guy said, how do I get into heaven? And Jesus said, the first thing you got to do is sell all your stuff and give away all your money. Because for you, man, that's your God. you got to get rid of that. And then we can start talking about where you need to be in your faith. So you've got to give, because that changes us. When we give, it changes us. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. It changes us. You see, here's the deal. And if you've been here very long, you know that I've said this many, many times. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need it. He's God. And if we ever think God needs our money, then we are very sadly mistaken. Any amount of money that we have, we have because he allowed us to have it. He gave it to us. But he doesn't need it. What he needs is our heart. And sometimes that's where it starts for us. We throw our money towards the Lord and our heart follows it until our heart changes sometimes. So we need to give. But we also don't need to look for the smallest amount to give and still call ourselves a giver. Say, well, I gave such and such. You know, eh, technically it wasn't what God wanted me to give, but I gave, so I'm a giver. Yes. But what we see in Scripture, in the words of Jesus, in, in Paul, in the book of Romans, and Paul, in First and Second Corinthians, is that our, as our faith grows, so also should our giving grow. If we're giving the same amount now that we gave 30 years ago, or even the same percentage, then maybe our faith really hasn't grown. Or maybe we haven't been filled with the Spirit. Filling with the Spirit means more trust in the Lord. I'm not saying give. The church needs your money. You should give because you love the Lord. Yes, the money pays for the lights, and the money pays for VBS, and and. and and the money ministers to, to countless people. I mean, people coming up for food or, or uh, this week, uh, you know, for those kids. I mean, the curriculum for VBS and the Bibles we're going to give kids and the things. and uh, Yeah, it pays for all that stuff. But you shouldn't give to pay for that stuff. You should give because you love the Lord. You should give, I mean, 
these people who gave here in Acts chapter 4 weren't giving because, you know, so-and-so, you know, didn't have any food or so-and-so didn't have any shoes. They brought it to the, the apostles and they didn't give it to those individuals. They brought it and said, okay, wherever the Lord needs the money, take the money and use it. They trusted the Lord that much. That's powerful. You trust the Lord. And I can give you example after example of how, even in our own family, there were times where, where you know, I mean, Katie and I, I mean, I remember before we had kids, we'd go through, you could look at our bank account and say, yeah, we're not going to make it. It's either we give to the church or we pay for insurance. <laughs> or we give to the church or uh, we pay for our cell phone bill. <laughs> like, it's not going to match up. But if we gave to the Lord, somehow the money would always be there every single time. I've told the story before about my parents. They'd been saving for months to buy a new washing machine because their washing machine broke. And in a church service, the Lord said, give the washing machine money when they had just hit the amount to buy the washing machine the next day. They wrote the check, put it in the offering plate, and a dude from the church said, I don't know what your needs are, but the Lord just told me to buy you a washing machine. God will take care of you every single time. I mean, Lynette, when that, at the Metamorphosis house, when the toilet was busted several years ago, and that dude called and said, I don't know what you need, but the Lord told me to call. And you heard the lady on the other end of the phone in the background say, you better not be telling them about that toilet. Because the Lord said, give a toilet. Or the water heater. Or here at the church, the ice machine was broken. And I remember that leadership meeting. Stand, and Lynette said it in the meeting. She said, we need to step out on faith. If we're going to use this for opportunities to minister to people, and we listed off like five things in the next three weeks where we could minister to people because we had an ice machine. And we need to do it. So we called the next day to buy the ice machine. After we called for the ice machine, you know who came in the day after that? A guy. He said, I don't know, you know, what y'all need here at the church, but here's a number the Lord told me to give. And he gave the money. It was to the dollar the amount of the ice machine. To the dollar. God will take care of you. He will every single time. And that's the only time in Scripture he says, test me. He says, test me in this. If you give, I will provide. He said, just try it. Try it and see, and I will provide. He says, do it. So if we're filled with the Spirit, we will gather, we will give, and we will show that God is a part of who we are. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul gives this, this great exposition on giving. He goes so far as to call giving a, 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 an act of God's grace in your life. You know, he talks about spending time with the Lord and, and uh, uh, how you speak to other people. And he says, an act of grace is giving. Proof of grace in your life is, is giving. Generosity is proof of God's grace in your life. It proves it. Not to other people. It proves it to yourself. It proves it that God is in you. You're filled with the Spirit. So these guys here, they pray for boldness. They pray for a movement of God and his signs and wonders. They're filled with the Spirit, and they begin to do, I mean, they gather, they, they give, they're telling all, all these people about Jesus. But I want to look at a response to what happens. Look down in verse 12 of chapter 5. Sometimes you should read the first 11 verses of chapter 5. An example of somebody who, who tried to give the bare minimum. <laughs> A poor example. 
But down in verse 12, this is what happened. So remember, they prayed for boldness, and they prayed for God to do signs and wonders. Verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now, Solomon's portico was a section of the temple. It was a huge covered area in the temple that could house you know, thousands of people. And so it was the largest gathering spot in the city of Jerusalem. So that's where the Christians would go because there's thousands of them. And so they went to the largest place they could gather there, here at Solomon's portico, in the temple. And they gathered there and they preached uh, and, and they told people about Jesus and they did miracles there. But notice, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. So they prayed for signs and wonders. They prayed that God would do signs and wonders. And God does signs and wonders through them. The thing they prayed for, or they were the answer to the very thing they prayed for. They just had to be willing to be used by God. They didn't say, God, allow us to do signs and wonders. If you look back in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse what is it, 30, you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed. They're praying for God to do it. And in verse 12, they're the ones who do it. They just have to make themselves available to God's moving, to God's action. Look at verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now, up to this point, when people get saved, it either says people are saved every single day, they're added to the number, or uh, back in chapter three or chapter 2, uh, I think it was like 3,000. And then in chapter 4, Four, we saw, or uh, yeah, chapter four, 5,000 get saved. And now he just says multitudes. So the number is so massive, he doesn't write it down. Doesn't take time to count. There's so many. Thousands upon thousands of people are getting saved here. Multitudes of men and women. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats as Peter came by. Uh, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So people just, they just wanted his shadow to fall on them, that they might be healed. Now, this, this has happened in Scripture. I mean, it, I mean it, back in, this is Scripture. But uh, back in the book of Mark, chapter 6, people do this with Jesus. They just want his shadow to fall on them. Or the woman with the issue of blood just came and just wanted to touch the hem of his robe kind of deal. And so now these guys are so filled with the Spirit and it's so evident to everybody around them that they sense they have, that these guys have the same presence as Jesus and they just want some of it. And people are coming out in droves for it. But I do want to point out these signs and wonders deal. So back in chapter 4, we saw the apostles were sharing the testimony. The apostles were preaching. And here they're doing signs and wonders. So they're using the gifts the Spirit's enabled them to use. They're using their spiritual gifts. So changing the world involves gathering, involves giving, it involves using your gifts, using your spiritual gifts. Because when you use your spiritual gifts, you gift the gospel. The 12 use their gifts to point people to Jesus. They preached back in verse 30. People came to know Jesus. Here in, in verse 12 of chapter 5, they're doing signs and wonders. People are getting saved. They're using these spiritual gifts. The Lord did signs and wonders at the hands of the 12, answering their own prayers by their own willingness, following the Spirit's guidance. They recognize their spiritual gifts. You say, man, I got no idea what my spiritual gifts are. And we know from Scripture, we know, uh, where is it? I wrote it here in my notes. 
1 uh, Corinthians chapter 12, that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit and you have spiritual gifts. That's what 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says. That every single believer has the Spirit and has spiritual gifts. You say, I don't know how to find out what my spiritual gifts is, are. Why well, do these, these disciples knew? I mean, they didn't have the New Testament to study and look and say, okay, well, this guy had this spiritual gift, and that guy had that spiritual gift, and this girl had that spiritual gift. I mean, like we do. They just, they did two things. They prayed about what it might be, and they just went out and started doing. And as they were doing and telling people about Jesus, it became evident in their doing that they were gifted in some certain special ways. They didn't wait until they found out. They just went out and started doing. And in the doing, they discovered their spiritual gifts. They, they, they allowed the guidance of the Spirit to show them where to go and what to do. And so that's what we need to do. You know, you know, we need to pray for guidance for the usage of our special gifts, our, our spiritual gifts. And we also need to pray for opportunities to use them so that in those opportunities we can see what our gifts are. You know, praying uh, to use our spiritual gifts, praying for signs and wonders to happen. And signs and wonders didn't just happen in the New Testament. They happen now. They still go on. Scripture never says, at this point, miracles stopped. Same spirits in these guys that's in you. And so you can still do these, some of these things. I mean, Tony and I were talking about it this morning, about whether some of the things that still happened then can happen now. Well, it's the same spirit, same spirit. And Scripture never says it stopped. So who's to say that it did if it's the same spirit? And so these guys are out there, and they're doing, and they're out there. But here's the thing about praying for boldness and praying for, for spiritual gifts, uh, opportunities for spiritual gifts. It's kind of like praying for, uh, you know, when you pray for patience. When you pray for patience, is God going to supernaturally just infuse you with patience? Well, he might. I guess he can. But <laughs> every time I've prayed for patience, he's just given me opportunities to use patience. <laughs> So you pray for boldness, you pray for spiritual gifts, he's going to give you opportunities to use it. Opportunities to use boldness. Because if we have the Spirit, we've already got the ability within us. He says, I've already given it to you. you got to have the opportunity. So here's an opportunity, use it. God, give me patience. Okay, you got it, you got the Spirit. Here's an opportunity, use it. You pray for boldness. Yes, here's an opportunity, use it. You pray for spiritual gifts. I've given them to you. You haven't discovered them yet because you haven't been out there doing anything. You want to know what they are? Just go out there and start practicing and see what they are and discover them in the middle of the usage of your gifts. If you're filled with the Spirit, you go out and you use your gifts. You use your gifts. And what we see here uh, in, in Acts chapter 5 is that massive number of people started coming to know Jesus. Multitudes of both men and women. So many they couldn't count them all. It was just person after person because they're using their gifts and they're gathering and they're giving and they're so uh, filled with the Spirit that everywhere they go, oh, here's somebody else who needs Jesus. Here's another opportunity to need Jesus. This person needs Jesus. It wasn't going to the bank to just get money out. It was going to the bank because that teller needs Jesus. It wasn't just going to Walmart to get your grocery list. It's because the person on the cereal aisle who's looking desperate needs Jesus. It's having a spiritual awareness of everywhere that you are going, everywhere he has sent you is an opportunity to show people about Jesus. I mean, in the Great Commission, go into the world, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, go and make disciples, Matthew 28. 
That go in the original language is as you go. As, I mean, it's assumed, Christians, we're going to go. That as we go to Walmart, as we go to the gas station, as we go to TJ's, as we go to Stillwell's, as we go to court, as we go wherever we go, as we go to school, this afternoon with the VBS pool, as we go to the pool, as we go, make disciples. Make disciples. Tell people about Jesus. Grow them up in the Lord. Changing the world begins with a filling of the Spirit. It begins with a filling of the Spirit. Because God, in His creation of the world, did not want the world to be like it is. This was, I mean, if you look around the world, just watch the news or just swipe over on your phone and see what the news of the day is. This was not God's design. This was not his plan. We hijacked his plan with sin and turned the world into what it is. And it will continue to go that direction. And the only way to ch change it, the only way to make changes is with the designer, with the Spirit working through us. Now, these things, these areas, these you know, uh, gathering and giving and using our gifts can set us up and prepare us for opportunities. But the filling of the Spirit is what infuses these opportunities and, and, and begins to change things. How's the queen going to change for Jesus? This is where it starts. We get a bunch of people in a room. Let's get filled with the Spirit. Let's gather, let's give, let's use our gifts in boldness and see what doesn't change in the next seven days. He says, man, seven days isn't enough to change. <laughs> God created the world in seven days. Yeah, but I'm not God. No, you're not. But there's a lot that can be done in seven days because of the Spirit within you. And so what I want you to do, this is the challenge for the next seven days. Pray Acts 4, 29 through 30 every single day this week. That's the prayer for boldness and the prayer for signs and, and wonders. Pray that every single day this week. Maybe you, on the way home today, after church, you need to go stop by Walmart and get you a pack of index cards, and you need to write those two verses down and put them everywhere, on the in the fridge, in the car, in your wallet, on the counter, on your nightstand, in, you know, everywhere. And pray this every single day this week. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your service to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Pray that every single day this week and see if anything changes. Pray that every single day this week and a willingness in your heart to see this happen. I mean, imagine you begin to pray this. Signs and wonders are performed. Chapter 4, verses 29 and 30. And then chapter 5, verse 12 begins to become your life. Signs and wonders are done by your hand between now and next Sunday. I mean, those apostles had no idea what was about to happen. All that they presented to the Lord was a willing heart. They were willing as they gathered. They were willing as they gave. They were willing as they discovered their spiritual gifts. 
And God took that willingness and changed the world. I mean, our very calendar is based on the fact of what these guys did in their lives, told the world about Jesus. It would not be the year 2021 if they didn't go out and tell the people about Jesus. It would be, we'd call it some other year. But it's based on that fact. How will you change the world? Now, you may not know all that encompasses in you changing the world, like Ignaz Samuelweiss. But all you can do is be faithful with what you've been given. And God will take that gift and do far more with it than we can ever ask or imagine. We begin in these areas, fill with the Spirit, gather, give, use our gifts. So will you commit to pray this every day this week? Will you commit to gather, go out of your way to gather? Will you commit to maybe change your giving habits? Maybe you need to start using your spiritual gifts. Do you need boldness or courage? Will you be courageous today? Will you be bold today and come to know Jesus? That's the first step of boldness is believing in Jesus. Whether you're in the room or you're watching online, you can come to know Jesus today. Because it's not about saying magic words or... or paying a special amount, or even, honestly, it's not about coming down front. It's about believing in your heart, believing that Jesus is God's son, that he died so all your sins would be forgiven, and then he rose from the dead so that you can live after you die. And if you believe that, you are granted eternal life. You can experience the power of God, the, the, the Holy Spirit that we've been talking about this entire time. If you believe in Jesus... Your world will be changed today. And what you can do is, if you're in the room, I'm about to pray for us. If you're in the room, I want to talk to you. During this next song we're going to sing after I pray, or after we dismiss, I want to talk to you and just celebrate with you and pray with you and tell you about next steps. Okay, you believe in Jesus? That's what you do next. Or if you're watching online, even if you're in the room, you can do it too, but there's a, on our website, or if you're watching online, there's a button right below, wherever you're watching it. It says, I made a decision. And you click on that, you, it has a place for your name, your phone number, your email, and then you just, little paragraph section, what your decision is. I want to believe in Jesus. And I'll get that email, and I will call you today, if you put your phone number down. I will call you today and pray with you and tell you, celebrate with you. Say, okay, now this is the next steps in what you do. You, we, you're saved, you get baptized, show the world you belong to Jesus. You become a part of a small group, and here's some other next steps of what you can do to continue uh, to grow as a follower of Christ. So will you follow Jesus today? Will you commit to gather? Will you maybe change your giving habits? Will you use your spiritual gifts? Will you pray for boldness and for the working of signs and wonders every day this week? I'm going to pray, and then you're going to have the opportunity to decide what you want to do.